Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to have you here. My name is Duncan Iverson. I'm Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. Welcome to the University of Sydney, uh, and welcome to this Sydney Ideas Lecture. We're very uh, delighted to, to have you with us tonight. Actually, tonight's a bit of a special occasion on, on, on many different levels, but one thing we're doing tonight, as well as uh, introducing Professor Lynn Meskel from, from Stanford, is also celebrating the launch of a new uh, master's program in heritage and museum studies. So you're all invited to stick around at the end for uh, a short uh, reception and to uh, meet Lynn and other colleagues uh, in the program. But my first duty is to acknowledge that we meet tonight on the land of the Gadigal people, one of Australia's First Nations and the land upon which the university is built. We like to think of the university as Australia's oldest university, over 160 years old. But of course, uh, this has been a place of learning for more than 40,000 years. And in fact, Victoria Park was a traditional meeting place of the Gadigal uh, for many thousands of years. So it's, a, it's an appropriate venue for our meeting tonight. So I want to acknowledge the traditional owners, both past and present, uh, before we begin tonight. My second duty, as I said, is to welcome all of you. It's great to have you all here. And uh, before I introduce uh, Professor Meskel, I want to invite Dr. Annie Clark, my colleague from the Department of Archaeology, to say a few words about this very exciting new master's program uh, that we've launched this year, that uh, Annie and uh, Jennifer Barrett and Barbara Kane and Anna-Marie Jagos and many others have been involved in uh, launching. It's very exciting. It's got off to a flying start, and we're delighted to have uh, Lynn here. So uh, I'd like to ask Annie to come up and say a few words. Thank you, Duncan. He's obviously taller than me. Um, and welcome, everybody, to the uh, inaugural event for uh, the new Master of Museum and Heritage Studies. It's an exciting new postgraduate program uh, combining uh, the existing program in museum studies, which has very successfully run here for over 20 years, and the uh, kind of upgrading of the Heritage Studies major, which used to be for undergraduates. So we've now put the two together to, to take advantage of the synergies that are, uh, are there in the workplace between museums and heritage. And it's, uh, we've had a great intake of new students, all very exciting, but exhausting, but um, it's been very exciting. So there'll be, you know, we've got over 30 students, new students, with more students coming in second semester. Um, this is our first of our public uh, events, and uh, there's actually a prize at the moment which hasn't been taken up. We, uh, we need a title for our seminars, our public seminar series. There are three rubber ducks uh, from the British Museum uh, on offer. I have had some entries in the competition, but so far they don't, we're not, we're academics, we're not marketers. So if anybody can come up with a really snappy title for our seminar, that would be fantastic, because um, I've been rejecting them all so far. Um, so yes, there are those, there's, there's a Egyptian rubber duck, a British, I think a Roman rubber duck and a Viking. So if anybody wants, wants those, please see me afterwards with a snappy title. Um, but again, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be uh, launching the, the new master's program. We're just into the first half of the semester. Um, it's exhausting, <laughs> but it's exciting and exhilarating as well because uh, it's, it's good to be there um, it, developing a program that's uh, quite innovative um, for, for us in Australia, really, and combining these, these two areas of research and teaching that have been and practice that have been quite separate. So, again, we're hoping 
that the new crop of graduates will go out and um, you know, work across both the museum and heritage sectors, uh, and of course, uh, you know, develop a whole range of, of new synergies in, in the two areas. So uh, we'd, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Um, I'll hand you back to Duncan, and also um, to thank Lynn, Professor Meskell, um, for coming and uh, launching our program as uh, such an eminent scholar, and we're very lucky to, to have her. So thank you very much. So as I said, tonight we're here to, in many ways, welcome Lynn back home. She is a graduate of the University of Sydney. She completed her undergraduate degree uh, in the Faculty of Arts, then went on to do her PhD at Cambridge. She is Professor of Anthropology at Stanford and Director of the Stanford Archaeology Center, which is a remarkable center. And to give you a sense of how remarkable Lynn is, I've had the pleasure of visiting there twice. So for uh, archaeologists and anthropologists to invite uh, a philosopher in their midst is something quite extraordinary. I mean, can you think, philosophers are so far away from material culture uh, and objects that you could possibly imagine. Uh, but Lynn's uh, research vision has, is one that includes a whole range of interdisciplinary interests. She has published ex extensively, most recently, a wonderful book called The Nature of Culture, The New South Africa. She has really been on the cutting edge of uh, bringing together literature on cosmopolitan ideas and human rights into her heritage studies. She's published extensively on the relationship between ethics uh, and archaeology. And going back even further, she's done uh, work uh, on, on Egypt uh, and uh, the Middle East. So it's quite an extraordinary uh, range of material. Her current work, which we're going to hear about tonight, involves an ethnography of uh, UNESCO. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Professor Lynn Meskell from the University of Stanford. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's actually my first public lecture since I graduated in 1994, so um, I'm feeling a bit old. <laughs> but I'd like to thank Annie Clark, first of all, for her generosity, for putting up with 100 emails, and I want to congratulate her on this wonderful heritage program uh, that she's spearheading here. And I think really Australia, I'm always very proud to be Australian. I think um, Australians do lead the way in the, in the field of heritage, and there are, of course, several people here tonight, and, and you know who you are, um, who are internationally renowned and who have been a real inspiration to me, um, to my students, um, when we read you. And I want to thank uh, Duncan, Professor Iverson. He's really also been an incredible inspiration in my own work and for a whole new generation of scholars. Uh, we all read him, his work on rights, post-colonial liberalism and cosmopolitan theory influenced my own work on UNESCO and that's what's really taken my research in this new direction. And I must say that I do wish Stanford had the vision to appoint such a dean, so thank you very much. So I'm going to take you back to 2012 now um, to talk about the 40th anniversary of UNESCO's 1972 convention concerning the protection of world cultural and natural heritage. It's the only international instrument that we currently have for safeguarding the world's heritage. However, what I'll talk about tonight is the uh, current crisis that UNESCO is facing on a, on a number of fronts. Those are financial, organizational, and political. And they threaten its mission and effectiveness to protect and preserve. 
I take UNESCO as the centerpiece of my talk because the organization simultaneously represents the aspirations of an international community, the limitations of world government, concern for minority protection and rights, notions of the global good, and of course, the driving force behind world heritage. It still surprises me, I guess, that archaeologists have not paid more detailed attention to UNESCO since it catalyzes so many of the issues at the forefront of our discipline. Yet, it also stands as a kind of cipher that can be read as having everything and at the same time nothing to do with archaeology. And I found myself drawn to this paradox. And I was also inherently aware of the caricatured sketches of the organization that um, I had perhaps published on uh, already and how limited my own knowledge was of its institutional processes. And so I embarked on this ethnographic work and became an official observer at World Heritage Committee uh, meetings. So in theory, UNESCO constitutes the arena where archaeology reaches worldwide attention, and yet archaeologists themselves are largely invisible in the political processes, governance, public profile, all of these aspects of the organization. It's actually kind of run by architects. So despite the many valid critiques of the World Heritage List, the recognition and value that inscription bestows is still deeply desired by almost all nations of the world, regardless of political or religious affiliation, economic status, or historical trajectory. This fact in itself, I think, offers a powerful lens onto which the potentials of something called heritage in political, cultural, economic, and spiritual terms should be evaluated. Now, many of us are archaeologists, and we typically presume, I think, when we envisage UNESCO, that conferring heritage rights and recognition largely resides with UNESCO's Paris headquarters. Today, there are probably less than 70 people working at the World Heritage Center, and their funding is close to negligible. In fact, as an intergovernmental body and part of the United Nations, it's the signatory states that are the most powerful decision makers in the world heritage system. Those states' parties have the most to gain in the geopolitical machinations and the voting blocks that have emerged in the last few years. Not only do nations garner international and national prestige, financial assistance, and benefit from heightened public awareness, tourism, and economic development, those nations leverage heritage for strategic, economic, and political trade-offs for military, religious, and geographical advantage. So UNESCO may have been forged on the liberal principles of diplomacy, tolerance, and development after the devastation of the Second World War, but today, statist agendas have come to eclipse substantive considerations of both global heritage and local communities. Like other vested stakeholders, archaeologists are often ignorant to the power alignments and the pacting that's in force. And we find ourselves to be bystanders in the outcomes of heritage making. So I suggest that educating ourselves and our students is key, and, so, and also becoming more effective facilitators for vulnerable communities, but perhaps also seizing on the potentials of this international forum to advance the recognition and rights of others. So in light of these larger structural processes, I ask how are emergent rights to the past being presented, promoted, and even prevented by particular actors internationally? In my talk, I'm going to draw from recent developments involving UNESCO's recognition of Palestine, the ensuing United States financial withdrawal, crises in Mali, 
uh, Syria and also recently Crimea, and the continued challenges to Indigenous authority by nations on the World Heritage Committee. Indeed, one of UNESCO's Millennium Challenges was the very issue of sovereignty in an increasingly transnational world and in the face of Indigenous claims and rights that often conflict with nation states. Yet the structural failures to foreground minority rights and Indigenous perspectives and to implement change within the World Heritage System are all underwritten by nation state desires and also colonial and neo-colonial alignments and in fact new imperialisms. So I want to start then with some background and a few hard facts. So as I said before, UNESCO is an intergovernmental organization. It's guided by international relations aimed to foster peace, humanitarianism, and intercultural understanding. And that developed out of the universalist aspirations for global governance envisaged first by the League of Nations. It remains committed to the modernist principles, whether you like it or not, of progress and development and subscribes to the liberal principles of diplomacy, tolerance, and development. Established after the end of World War II in the wake of devastation and atrocity, UNESCO's central task was to promote peace and the great quote, of course, to change the minds of men. I think that's humankind now, but that was the original. And that changing was done primarily through education and the promotion of cultural diversity and understanding. So it's not surprising that this early work was focused on education, universities and libraries, and internationalism, not archaeology. It's often said throughout UNESCO that the E for education comes first. But given this history of recognition and reconciliation, the long-standing ethos of cultural diversity and protection of minority lifeways, it's not surprising that UNESCO has emerged as the only structural avenue to global governance and promotion of cultural heritage. Within the United Nations, UNESCO, of course, may not be as powerful as high-profile uh, international peacekeeping, environmental initiatives, or development programs. Instead, it's always seen as the cultural arm, the visionary agency, and the ideas factory for the larger organization. Within UNESCO, the World Heritage Center was established in 92 to act as the focal point or coordinator for all matters relating to this 1972 convention. That convention is again an international uh, intergovernmental agreement. It's operated for 40 years with strong consensus and near universal membership. If you think about it, some 190 uh, nations have ratified the convention, so it's one of the most popular, most successful. And from those nations, some 21 members of the World Heritage Committee are constituted and they're uh, elected at a general assembly. They serve a four-year term. That committee, is the most powerful player in world heritage. And those 21 nations, or states parties, as they're called, are charged with implementing the convention. They must all be signatory nations to the World Heritage Convention. But interestingly for us, their representatives are now dominated by state-appointed ambassadors and politicians, rather than archaeological or environmental experts. And there are 981 sites now on the World Heritage List 80% of them are cultural. So unlike those people in Paris, the employees of the World Heritage Center, the members of the World Heritage Committee are state representatives and thus free to pursue their own national interests, maximize their power, push their economic self-interest, and minimize transaction costs. 
these national imperatives and economic necessities are more binding than any ethical norms. Annual committee meetings are becoming more like marketplaces where the nations of the world address each other at great length, but by procedures that ensure genuine dialogue is ruled out. Given the economic interests at stake uh, and the presumed prestige that inscription on the list bestows, nations are increasingly insisting upon nominating properties that are in the opinion of organizations like ICOMOS and the IUCN um, without, uh, without warrant for global recognition. And unsurprisingly, there is a strong correlation between the countries represented on the committee and the lo locations of the properties that get inscribed. So just a few numbers from 1977 to 2005. In 314 cases, 42% benefited those countries with committee members during its mandate. So if you're on the committee, it's very likely you'll get an inscription. I think Australia's served for 26 of the 40 years. So we've done quite well. Um, and I think this is striking when one considers that those 21 members of the committee are only 11% of the total number of nations that have signed up. And you see the same small subset of countries rotating on and off the committee every year. So the committee has never been a true representation of the United Nations. And if you look, the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, have been on more than most countries, but there are some making up for it now. So in the last uh, three World Heritage uh, Committee sessions that I've, I've been at and studied, we see a kind of revolution taking place. Some people have even said it's going to lead to the death of this convention. There are mounting challenges to the expert opinions from ICOMOS and the IUCN. There's what's seen as an inc incredibly overt politicization of the committee. And of course, UNESCO's financial crisis, exacerbated by the US financial withdrawal. So I've seen these, witnessed these geopolitical uh, uh, machinations within the committee. And what we see is excessive lobbying by nominating nations. There's a pacting between certain blocks and the, maintain the maintenance of colonial connections. And there are also continued attacks on the advisory bodies, ICOMOS and the IUCN. Australia is very active in um, ICOMOS internationally. Um, and we see the overturning of almost all recommendations about conservation. So it's a kind of revolutionary politics at work. And all of this re reveals a dissatisf um, dissatisfaction with the processes of inscribing and conserving world heritage of countries wanting not to be judged, but rather to list more and more sites, regardless of conservation, authenticity, or outstanding universal value. And of course, we as archeologists have long been skeptical uh, about the transparency and legitimacy of those terms regardless. But I want to turn now to one radical step that UNESCO has uh, recently taken, and it's an example of positive action after decades of failed attempts, which is the recognition of Palestine. The UN and UNESCO have actively supported Palestine for many decades, from the establishment in 1949 of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. They also granted observer status to Palestine, uh, to the PLO in 1970, and they attempted in the early 90s uh, to admit Palestine as a full member. In 2011, the vote to extend UNESCO membership to Palestine was passed, 107 to 14, with 52 abstentions. The United States, Israel, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Germany were amongst the nations that opposed while Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa all voted in favor. 
Now, that latter group I've written a lot about because I find them fascinating. They're a powerful politico-economic uh, politico coalition known as BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And it's an acronym coined at Goldman Sachs in the States for those nations at a similar stage of newly advanced economic development who want to actively distance themselves from those older G8 countries. And that is an incredibly powerful block, very powerful in UNESCO. So in the months that followed uh, membership, Palestine moved very swiftly to nominate the Church of the Nativity on an emergency basis to the World Heritage uh, in Danger list before it was even inscribed on the original list. In an open letter to the committee, 15 organizations from Bethlehem imputed that, and I quote, the international community has a legal and moral responsibility to protect our sites and referring to the wider political context, they said, including 45 years of illegal Israeli occupation. We believe this is a step in the direction of peace, providing historical justice to our city, its holy places, and its people, unquote. Now, the latter is fully in line with UNESCO's aspirational stance, yet, of course, international politics and the interests of sovereign states swiftly sought to impede Palestine's progress. A statement from the US State Department immediately voiced disappointment over the request and urged the committee, and I quote, not to become a victim of politicization. Now this single word, politicization, has been the subject of a recent outpouring uh, on the history of US-UNESCO relations, which have been rocky to say the least. Put simply, politicization in the US means the introduction of issues for which they no longer have enough votes to exclude. Understandably, Palestine argued that Israel and the US uh, sought to block their bid for heritage status for the church by urging other members of the committee to vote it down. During the World Heritage Meetings in St. Petersburg, American representatives were heard decrying the entire UN system and the credibility of UNESCO and claiming that the nomination was illegal. What was the right of the US to appeal, I heard one delegate ask. The German ambassador echoed their views most vociferously. She actually called on UNESCO's legal advisor, who was there all the time, to intervene and imposed her own authority as a lawyer to denounce the nomination. But happily, the position of the, both uh, the US and Germany towards Palestine was isolated at best. Hundreds of delegates cheered the successful inscription of Palestine's first site at those World Heritage meetings, and it was a very moving moment and possibly when UNESCO could actually do something. But of course there have been longer term political and financial consequences for UNESCO after its recognition of Palestine. The US State Department terminated the substantial funds it already owed, so in arrears, and its continued funding are going forward. In 1990, the US Congress passed legislation intended to block normalization of Palestinian relations and activities within the international community. This law bans the appropriation of funds, and I quote, for the United Nations or any specialized agency thereof, which accords the PLO the same standing as a member state. And again, in 1994, I think this is in the Clinton era, unfortunately, um, Congress barred funding, again, to any affiliated organization of the UN which grants full membership as a state to any organization or group that does not have internationally recognized attributes of statehood." Unquote. Now, the US contributed about 22% of UNESCO's total budget. And at first glance, 
this US withdrawal signaled a shortfall of maybe $60 million, which was kind of manageable. And other countries stepped up, including Turkey, Qatar, Algeria, and Gabon, very famously. They all made voluntary donations that on face value went some way to remedy the financial crisis. But the political economy of these specific transactions is more complex. First, the United States was already in arrears with its contribution, and then it was withholding money for another two years. There were also shortfalls in funding from the US to the World Heritage Fund, a separate fund. And in March 2012, the Director General of UNESCO predicted that the cash shortfall was closer to 188 million US dollars. Uh, that June in Paris, I was told it was actually more like $240 million. And the effect was crippling on all vital programs, making it almost impossible to keep global operations going. Second, second point really is that all of those international voluntary contributions I just mentioned are going to have very little impact. Some of them were earmarked to return to the donor nation like Algeria or allocated for special programs like Qatar and couldn't go back into a general budget. So that's the state of financial affairs. The US, of course, had suspended uh, funding to UNESCO twice before, again, always over political decisions. Once in 1977, when Israel's petition to be considered part of Europe was denied, and in 1984, over national interests and Cold War conspiracy, which cost UNESCO $43 million. But in fact, it was the Bush administration's decision to rejoin UNESCO in 2004, of course, largely motivated by pressures of international politics, and of course, trying to also shift his unilateralist, uh, unilateralist uh, cowboy reputation that, that made him on the US um, rejoin. But as the case of Palestine forcefully demonstrates, the US still runs counter uh, to the majority of international opinion. On the ground, the creation of something called world heritage and the recognition that ensues can be incredibly powerful and liberating. But as the US backlash demonstrates, it can also incite and divide, not to mention impose punishments. Richard Hoggart, who was a British academic and assistant uh, general, D director general of UNESCO in the 70s, I think captured the situation. He said, and I quote, sovereign states are easily resentful. But also more generally, he says, when one examines how many member states have actually signed these instruments, how long it takes to bring most conventions into force, and how often the instruments are flouted by states which have signed them, or at least publicly associated themselves with their sentiments, the record is less impressive. It then sometimes looks more like an exercise in international public relations rather than a genuine advance in world law." Unquote. The recognition of Palestine underscores one of UNESCO's stated millennium challenges, addressing the issue of sovereignty in an increasingly transnational world, most notably in the face of minority rights and claims that often conflict with nation-state agendas. This is increasingly pressing when we examine the inclusion and management of indigenous heritage places and practices within the world heritage arena. And I want to look now, turn to the uh, brilliantly conceived World Heritage Indigenous People Council of Experts called WIPCO, um, which was a wonderful initiative proposed first in Australia, something you can all be proud of in 2000, but it was sadly quashed in Helsinki a year later. This is a story of a radical yet failed attempt to craft 
a global Indigenous Council of Experts within UNESCO, and people are still calling for this year after year. It's not going away. Um, so how do you do that in an organization founded on uh, nation-state sovereignty? The initiative was taken in response to concerns voiced by Indigenous people about their lack of involvement in the development and implementation of laws, policies and plans to protect their knowledge, tradition, cultural values, and of course as that applies to ancestral lands within or comprising sites now designated as World Heritage Properties. This all came about in the World Heritage Meetings, um, I think in Cairns, and then the year later in 2001 there seemed to be incredible widespread support, enthusiasm. A representative from the UN uh, Commission for Human Rights presented the history and position of indigenous issues within the UN. There were meetings with uh, ICOMOS, ICROM, the IUCN. Everybody looked at mandates, structures, processes, activities, how they could build this relationship with indigenous people. And from those initial meetings, numerous suggestions were made for the possible roles of WIP WIPCO within this world, existing World Heritage process. These included things that I'm sure many archaeologists in Australia are um, fam familiar with, ensuring full consultation with local people, strengthening the management of existing sites, promoting intangible cultural heritage and traditional knowledge, and assisting with crafting management guidelines and participation in the nomination and evaluation of sites. A council might afford opportunities for training, specifically sharing successful Indigenous site management approaches and practices between groups internationally. There were numerous follow-up meetings held as UNESCO was meeting after meeting. So they did all of that. They had letters of evaluation. They were asking for state parties to give responses. But the decision to formalize WIPCO was deferred again and again. Now, unsurprisingly, it was the United States who were resistant. And they claimed, and I quote, we already have a clearly defined legal relationship to indigenous people that would render it inappropriate for us to submit such lists without consulting them, unquote. This would prove a convenient and ironic deflection in retrospect, given that the United States was impelled, um, the United Nations rather, was impelled to uh, send a mission a decade later to the US to evaluate the scope of the infringement of human rights accorded to Native Americans. Um, it's another example, of course, of one country's defense of their territorial sovereignty, its resistance to international jurisdiction and internal minority self-determination and of course, its attempts to limit the scope of a progressive global initiative. Now, the position of the US may be entirely predictable, perhaps for an Australian audience, it is not surprising at all. Um, the, the US has a very uh, historic um, relationship with native people and uh, antipathy towards the UN system. You, we might, might find that uh, not so surprising, but it was actually the French objections that I found um, uh, rather startling and excessive. France uh, objected to the institutionalization of a council on legal, practical, and financial grounds. And they also claimed that the issue of indigenous people was adequately covered within the UN system in the UN Economic and Social Council. And of course, there is an establishment uh, for a permanent forum on indigenous issues. So the French were concerned about jurisdiction, participation, and authority. Their key indictment was the problem of sovereignty. Now, France's position was that indigenous issues should be resolved in the framework um, of the rules and procedures of state parties. So nothing international, each country deals with its own issues. The position of France and the US, they both espouse an internal national solution. 
one that speaks to a kind of already established tolerance at home. Now you think of these two countries. Uh, Wendy Brown has argued that such appeals work to overtly block the pursuit of equality or freedom. The idea of tolerance shores up troubled orders of power, repairs state legitimacy, glosses troubled universalisms, and provides cover for imperialism. Such mobilizations can, in fact, legitimize racialized state violence. And you might think that France is historically removed from indigenous affairs, but of course there are sizable groups within their borders who are considered indigenous, such as the Breton and the Basque, uh, and France is nervous about those. And they have not, of course, ratified the ILO Convention on Indigenous People, nor has the United States. So it's estimated that at least half of the European countries that submit dossiers do not involve local stakeholders in the preparation of those tentative lists, and at least two-thirds draft their lists without any public consultation whatsoever. So the possibility of an advisory council of Indigenous experts potentially crossing national lines in solidarity over, one, over one's na national properties, of course, even though they'd have to be nominated by the country themselves, was just deemed intolerable. The moment for connection and a global alliance of Indigenous representatives had passed, dashed by two nations whose constitutions are founded upon liberty and equality. So if we stand back from these events, it becomes clearer that UNESCO's universal heritage goals are frustrated and impeded by the interests of nations that cannot be called to account because UNESCO is underpinned by the desire for consensual and diplomatic solutions within the wider UN structure, thus by the organization's very definition and mandate. But perhaps there's a more fundamental divide as well. The possibilities for indigenous collaboration across state lines are complicated by particular local cultures, national legal framings, histories of oppression, and relationships with the state. These fraught specificities, while unifying in sentiment, can also impinge upon implementing international processes and legislation. So whether one is talking about universal human rights or world heritage, these seemingly global elements, universal and world, remain stymied by statism. Considering the future possibility of a global indigenous network to advise on world heritage, no one denies that there is a considerable and growing body of shared expertise, successful management strategies, and alternative understandings of heritage. As the continued desire, and it's called for every year, this desire for a network underscores webs of indigenous interaction may be proliferating, and so is the traffic in ideas. But how can organizations like UNESCO be empowered not only to endorse, but to execute rights-based strategies, much like they move successfully in the Palestinian case of recognition and sovereignty? But we have to understand it took decades of campaigning. But what structurally impedes this progression? The short answer is the bounds of the convention itself. It's a treaty that can have, and I quote, no third party effects unless this is clearly intended by state parties and consented to. So while Palestinian recognition was acceptable internationally to the majority, states are still very resistant to the insertion of indigenous authority and oversight within their own nations, intranationally, within their own natural and cultural properties. Assistant Director General uh, for Culture at UNESCO, Francesco Banderin, indirectly questioned the hegemony of status structures by asking, 
whether heritage that lies outside the jurisdiction of state parties might be supported indirectly by establishing links with other legal tools or developing partnerships with institutions and civil society. This opens the door, this is quite a radical move, for um, potential non-state uh, party support for a site nom being nominated, but of course it remains to be seen whether such properties could actually be inscribed on the list if they're not under the auspices of a nation. Thinking creatively, there might be other ways to incorporate Indigenous expertise while bypassing this state control. And I recently spoke to a number of senior officials at UNESCO about human rights, specifically Indigenous rights and those of connected communities who live in and around World Heritage properties. Given that there is now in force a Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People ratified by some 150 nations, surely there could be some mechanism or linkage with this 1972 convention that makes nation states accountable, particularly if indigenous groups were being forcibly relocated, marginalized or persecuted, or even excluded from socioeconomic benefits from their own heritage places. And I think this would have real consequences for indigenous groups and their rights to restitution and self-determination. Now, some of those officials I spoke to said the state parties, the nations themselves, would never allow such discussion to even start at a heritage forum and would immediately suppress the invocation of the rights charter in terms of national heritage. Yet the most senior UNESCO official suggested that there might be a route to holding states accountable to the larger committee when sites are being nominated, so from now on. There's a more rigorous provision now to see whether state parties can include all the relevant stakeholders working closely and equitably with communities and sharing benefits. So I think voting to remove a World Heritage Site already on the list would be impossible on the grounds of harmful treatment to communities. In theory, it may be possible not to inscribe a new site if affected communities were marginalized or not properly consulted. And of course, this was an argument put forward by Australia ICOMOS, by people we probably know and love, in 2001, and it's of course, without free, proper and informed consent, sites should not be nominated. So while Australia leads the way, everybody else is, you know, a decade behind trying to catch up. So I, I, hope, that, I hope that something will happen. But the failures of WIPCO and its aftermath are a prime example of the powerlessness uh, of UNESCO and its offices, no matter how well-meaning. As UN correspondent Linda Fasulo put it, and I quote, there are people out there who think the UN has a kind of power and insidious influence, and the truth is the exact opposite. The UN is too weak not too strong, unquote. And as a second tier organization, UNESCO is no different. It's even more complicated. And that's where I draw my uh, final example, which is the 2012 uprising in Mali and the destruction of World Heritage property, uh, properties there by rebels. So the most poignant example of the financial and political disasters facing the World Heritage Program and its powerlessness to intervene in the politics of preservation erupted in front of our eyes in the 2012 committee sessions in St. Petersburg, Russia, with the destruction of Mali. It was happening as we were having, having the meetings. Um, on June 28, the World Heritage Committee discussed the failures of an earlier treaty, which is the Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict, which is a 94, 1954 document. 115 states parties have ratified that, including Mali in 1961. I think the UK, US, Germany, and Japan have not. 
So it all sort of starts to build a picture. ICOMOS proposed that Timbuktu was immediately placed on the World Heritage in danger list. Two days later, the Director General publicly called for a halt to the destruction. If it was the public spectacle um, of the international meetings, I think that almost escalated uh, the violations. It was the Russian ambassador, Eleonora Mitrofanova, who was the World Heritage Chairperson. She described uh, the destruction as, and I quote, the tragic news for us all, even more so for the inhabitants of Timbuktu who have cherished and preserved these monuments over more than seven centuries, unquote. But on July 1st, Mali addressed the committee um, we were still in session, an appeal for assistance, but gave little outline about how UNESCO could effectively respond in the face of ongoing rebel attacks. And the committee members were very eager to find a solution, obviously, and they, but they were quickly frustrated in their ability to act or to offer concrete solutions on the ground. Some delegations complained that such inaction called into question the committee's integrity yet most of the time was spent drafting a statement of condemnation. Uh, France quipped that they were not addressing a state party, so could be fairly sure that the perpetrators would not be reading the declaration or following it. Undaunted, the German ambassador, uh, the lawyer, uh, called for a minute's silence, saying, today we have lost a child, we have lost a parent. Deliberations over the situation in Mali uh, went on, the draft declaration went on into the next day. Committee members, these 21 countries, wrangled for hours over wording like rehabilitation or reconstruction, and they were plagued by problems like translation between English and French. What was the word for safeguarding? This must have taken an hour. It's all, it all happening, it was all captured fleetingly on these vast uh, television screens uh, with bilingual track changes documents running concurrently. Mitrofanova herself posed the more uncomfortable questions. When could UNESCO send a mission? Realistically, it would be uh, unsafe to do so at the moment. There were budgetary constraints caused by the United States. Who would exactly pay for such promises of reconstruction? If you're going to use the word, you have to pay for it. The Indian ambassador imputed that UNESCO lacked both the mandate and the capacity to do anything uh, at the request of the, of, the, um, of the state. He said, we're getting into dangerous terrain here. In the end, it was left to Mitrofanova to re recapitulate UNESCO's economic and political predicament. She said, and I quote, all we have are computers, papers, and pens. You're dealing with bandits and criminals, and we have only paper and pens. The international community at this time has not set up specific actions and effective measures, which those who take human life and destroy cultural heritage have, uh, and the call to reason does not always produce the best outcome with these people." Unquote. So perhaps the spokesman for the Ansar Dine insurgents rather nailed the point better. He said, God is unique. All of this is haram, forbidden in Islam. We are all Muslims. UNESCO is what? Unquote. So I'm reminded again of Fasulo's assertion that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of organizations like UNESCO, fearing them to be too strong rather than too weak to be effective. As one former US ambassador put it, there is no such thing as the UN, just 192 countries with different agendas and a whole collection of civil servants who work there. We can also say that good intentions aside, 
UNESCO's is still an elite vision of the world that is ready to be exploited by various political expediencies. And who listens to this vision? UNESCO spends a great deal of time and resources producing various iterations of its ed education, science, communication, and culture ideals, but much less time connecting them to the everyday world of practice. I think it's important to note that at the present moment, powerful Western nations on the World Heritage Committee are willing to extend offers of help and their own brand of expertise to countries like Mali on this state-to-state -state basis. Yet, of course, UNESCO doesn't have the financial capacity or the legislative mandate to actually intervene. Remember, too, that many of those nations who acted positively to recognize Palestine and supported the inscription of the Church of the Nativity, but those same state parties remain reluctant to embrace a network of indigenous experts who would effectively address and attend to the problems in their own countries. I think it's easier to mobilize support for international uh, injustice, for overturning regimes with whom we do not sympathize, to criticize heritage practices that do not accord to predetermined Western models of conservation, rather than to acknowledge otherness and other knowledge at home. Sovereign states are indeed resentful. And regardless of UNESCO's own desires for structural transformation, successful in the case of Palestine, very radical, not in the case of WIPCO, those successes turn on the voting power of signatory nations, not bureaucrats and program officers in Paris. And the US financial withdrawal underlies that UNESCO's mission and global capacity is precarious at best. And today, it's premised on the whims of powerful, wealthy nations like the US, but increasingly, Russia and China. Remember, too, that Russia has continued to support the Syrian regime, profiting from a billion-dollar arms trade in the full knowledge that World Heritage sites, not to mention the Syrian people themselves, are being destroyed by those same weapons. During the World Heritage meetings last year in Russia, they refused to list the Syrian sites as World Heritage in danger against the majority of other nations. And now UNESCO has been called to act to protect cultural property and, of course, journalists in Crimea, while Russian Foreign uh, Ministry uh, Ambassador Mitrofanova, that same person, says UNESCO cannot act without Russia's consent. So the very same ambassador who was outspoken in the situation in Mali and called for international support through UNESCO's auspices is now denying those same rights uh, and extending those to the people of Ukraine. Now, I know that I, this is a ra rather depressing talk, but and, um, <laughs> seem to be well known for that these days, but I know it's a daunting fact for archeologists and people working in heritage. Um, and it's particularly hard for people who are trying to support local indigenous and minority constituencies from the bottom up, only to see heritage being trumped by global processes on a scale heretofore unimagined. Right from its beginnings at the close of World War II, in the wake of violence, devastation, and intolerance, a situation largely unchanged to this day, UNESCO would always live, as they famously say, in the best of times and the worst of times, poised between the impossible expectations of its charter and the abysmal realities it had to confront daily, an elusive hope in the midst of multilateral conflict and confrontation, where poverty, hunger, disease, and oppression had first claims on the minds of men in most parts of the world, 
Cultural heritage has been part of that elusive hope for a better world for the past 40 years. And as the UNESCO uh, organization, agency, whatever, tries its best to educate the world, we as archaeologists have to educate ourselves to the political economies at work in our research, at our sites, in our host nations, and amongst our many communities. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks, Lynn, very much. We have some time for questions, and we have a microphone, so I'll ask Lynn to stay up at the front with me. Hi, Lynn, welcome back to Sydney. I'm kind of glad I hadn't heard this lecture before last year when I had to do a desk review of an inscription for UNESCO. I kind of thought this might be a bit tricky, but I tried to pretend I didn't know this stuff. But I wondered if you would like to comment. All of those statements that you made, particularly about the issue of Indigenous experts and the way the political economy is working, all that being said, why is the threat of having a site delisted still so powerful? Great question, Kate, yes. Um, actually, the World Heritage in Danger listing was initially designed, as far as I know, to be an incentive uh, for countries to mobilise funds and support. Interestingly, in the US, the Everglades was listed in danger, and um, the US fought to keep it on the endangered list because it allowed those mobilisations of funding for uh, conservation. But of course, the US can afford to do that, and of course, they're not paying their money anyway, so whatever. But countries in which uh, it actually really matters, uh, this is seen as a black mark. So Germany, uh, the, the example um, there of the bridge being built, uh, you know, they had a referendum, they took it very seriously. Uh, that's the famous case of delisting. The other is an Arabian oryx sanctuary that they wanted to drill for oil anyway, so they let that go quite happily. But most countries, Peru when Machu Picchu was talked about, Italy when Pompeii was talked about, this, this is seen as a, a total stigma. So the, the idea of that uh, World Heritage listing being, being used in an enabling way to, to, to galvanise the international community has, has really dropped out of the, the program. Um, and now you see countries using it in a different way, like uh, the Palestinian case where you put it on the World Heritage in Danger list before it even made the real list. The French tried it as well with Chauvet Cave. We'll put it on an emergency basis rather than go through the initial listing. So it's being used in all sorts of different ways now, and I think it's lost its in initial um, meaning. So there's only two delisted, but many endangered. And I, I think, you know, for something like Syria, it, it actually uh, galvanizes uh, international support and visibility, and, uh, you know, it's... It, it's a good, it's a, in a sense, it can be a good thing. I mean, it's a terrible thing that's happened in the first place, but it, it can be used. It's just, you're dealing with politicians now. We're not dealing with heritage experts. And I'm afraid even Australia has moved from having people on the delegation speaking, heading it up, that were really trained in those areas to having people from the Foreign Office. So we're all doing it. It's, yeah, it's big business, basically. I'm interested in... The, the fact that the list seems to be not representative. So 900 um, sites on the list, 759 are cultural sites. When I look at that list, uh, there's over 200 of them have some sort of religious association. 
about 100 were associated with one religion, that's Christianity, and there's 28 cathedrals. Now, it seems to me that the whole thing is skewed. You, you talked about uh, recognising minorities, but the, the list as a whole is definitely skewed to the, the yes. predominant, the predominant uh, culture and, um, you know, you might, yeah, no, you might well so. say, what, what's going on? We're just uh, subsidising um, uh, tourist sites. Yes. Absolutely right. Really good questions here. People know what they're doing. Um, absolutely, yes. So there is a huge backlash against the sort of cathedrals and palaces. Germany still does it. It only seems to have cathedrals and palaces. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you've got France. I think France is... Oh, no, so Italy is in front runner, and then it's for France and Spain. So there's a history to the list. And if you think of the 40 years of inscription, it started off actually quite in a very diverse way because the, the sites people wanted to protect were you know, Abu Simbel, Borobudur, uh, Basra, Mahenjo-Daro. Um, it was actually very global, uh, the, um, the first incentives for international cooperation around heritage. And then those nation states who often had the directors of the World Heritage Center and other things come from their countries, pushed very strongly for cathedrals and palaces. And understandably, that Eurocentric bias was critiqued by many of us. The Germans continue to list those sites. There are, of course, the Italians putting forward more and more uh, wineries. And I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, it has a kind of stereotypical quality. But what has happened, um, we all want to go, of course, but yeah. uh, what has happened is that I think in the last few years, you have seen a diversity of sites. So it's not unusual to have salt mines and mercury mines put on the slag heap in uh, uh, Nord de Calais in France. Not really aesthetic, not a cathedral, uh, industrial sites. Uh, Levuku, I think, which is the Fijian port town that was put on, has a lot of local meaning. Uh, it may not be an architectural masterpiece in a European, strictly speaking, sense looks a lot like my hometown. Um, you know, so there's a lot of more feel-good uh, sites put on. Um, I think Singapore is going to have their first site. You've got Indonesia pushing. So it is, it is changing. I think those 40 years leading up to now, it has been very stereotypical. And yeah, you're absolutely right, dominated by particular religions. But I think there is a change coming. And it's because of that committee changing. So you've got 50-something states signing up to begin with, and now you've got 190, and everybody wants their sights on. And, and that's, that's the good thing. You know, that's taken a long time, but that's the success story, I think, of the, the convention. Um, I wondered to what extent intangible heritage has forced a change in the thinking of the committee and also inserted some of that Indigenous agency that was missing because obviously the intangible, although I know I think there are some German dancers that are on the list as well, but in the main they tend to be non-state kinds of things. And how it's also changed the monetary kind of potential of action across UNESCO in that the kinds of um, funding needed for intangible heritage are a much more localised issue mm. than keeping a cathedral up or have a movie. 
Also a good question. They're, they're two very different conventions, and I really, m my research is focused on the 72 convention, and that's housed in the World Heritage Center. And I think it's quite telling that the Intangible Heritage Convention and its operation is in a totally different building and is in a totally different secretariat, and they don't meet, <laughs> and there's uh, not much uh, overlap. I have students who work on the international, the uh, intangible charter as it relates specifically to Latin American countries, for example. What's interesting is that I think, say, the US probably even hasn't ratified that convention. So it does seem like your major players, and most of the world wants to be on the 72 list to get the blue Acropolis uh, stamp, um, and not so worried about the intangible list, and so it becomes the global south. It's, it worries me that it's only the global south that really, you know, the countries that may not have things on the World Heritage List that then opt for the intangible list. And many of the countries that are doing that, particularly some of the African delegations I've spoken to, are really tired of that being their only option. What they would like to see is that intangible values are more integrated to the 72 convention. So I think it was one of the speakers from Senegal quite rightly said, we don't actually need the two. What we need is for uh, physical spaces to also be considered uh, as having intangible values. And so we don't want this second prize thing. You know, we just want it integrated. And I think um, it's probably uh, more of a reflection of the atomization of the organization and this idea there are people with big buildings and there are people with culture. You know, and that's always singing and dancing. It, it fundamentally worries me. Uh, you can imagine why. Um, but, you know, the German ambassador also mentioned, you know, there's a reason why we have more on the list is <laughs> because we build in stone, right? <laughs> Which was immediately um, <laughs> countered by a delegate from Kenya and Sri Lanka. But anyway, it, it's that we're still trying to overturn that. We're trying to educate our diplomats. Yeah. Thank you. Great question. Thanks, Lynn. That was great. Um, I was just um, uh, thinking about um, moving from a depressed state of mind to a more exciting one, because I think your work is tremendously exciting. But in terms of the World Heritage Committee, um, I think when we look at the kind of definitions of heritage that were in the Venice Charter and in UNESCO itself as, world, as heritage as cultural property, and then the work in heritage studies, say, in the last um, decade, that looks at heritage um, more as intangible as a discourse, like Laura Jane Smith mm. talks about, or kind of narratives that Ian Dull and the Cambridge kind of heritage studies people talk about. Are we then seeing in the World Heritage Committee this kind of challenge to the kind of Western notion of heritage as primarily material culture, and that in the politicisation within the World Heritage Committee, um, some exciting dialogue around what is heritage mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. while we might decry the destruction of Banayama Buddhas, we equally have a, an amazing story about contested um, emotions and context to that site. Mm. It's not really a question but I'm just wondering whether mm. you kind of could see that your work in that more kind of uh, heritage studies kind of reading of challenges to the idea of mm. heritage. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the academic sphere uh, because I think it's actually true that even though many of the people who are 
involves heavily in world heritage and, and running that secretariat um, are very, uh, well, they're scholars, they have PhDs, they've had various uh, like architectural practices, they're very eminent people. But I think they have quite a low <laughs> uh, opinion of uh, m most academics because we spend most of our time criticizing the organization. That's what I said at the beginning of my talk. I did a lot of it too. And we don't understand how it works. We don't understand who the players are, who has the vote, who has the money, it, what they're up against, um, the diplomatic nature of the mission. So in fact, uh, I'm starting to think that there might be some truth in the fact that a lot of heritage work is a lot of hot air and a lot of uh, positioning and, and posturing without actually following the money and looking at how insidious a lot of this stuff is, that um, it is about conflict and it is about following money that also goes with weapons, that also goes with trade agreements, and that picking on a couple of people who live in Paris just for the moment before they're shipped out to Kenya and Dubai um, because they can't afford to live in Paris anymore, um, you know, is perhaps not the, is not the target, as it were. Your other point about who's on the committee and how the ideas of heritage are changing, I think is one of the great things about this kind of revolution that's happened, that you're getting a post-colonial revolution on the committee. So the strongest advocates and voices, and, and we just did a, an analysis of the last 12 years of interventions by every country that has spoken at any point, whether for or against, at all committee sessions, and it's India <laughs> that is the most vocal by far. And increasingly, it's countries like Brazil um, and Russia, um, Qatar, Algeria, Egypt. So it's great. We don't want to hear from the US and the UK all the time. Um, the US can't be on the committee because it hasn't paid its money. So that's fine. I'm all for that. I mean, you know, it's very moving to see other nations being represented and saying, this is actually what we consider heritage. As the Egyptian, I think it was the Egyptian, or it could have been the Indian ambassador said, um, you know, we evaluate sites, not dossiers. And so, you know, you, you've got to applaud that. And uh, I, th I think that is a positive step forward. I'm more concerned when the conservation part drops out. I don't really mind, you know, what gets inscribed. or It's not up to me. I feel very removed from that. But what's sad is if nations are willing to support huge infrastructural development and mining, and of course Australia's right in there with many mining companies, uh, you know, allowing that um, to go. So that sort of politicization when it's about economics, I think is a little sadder. But it is very dynamic, you're right. It is very a dynamic time. Thank you. Um, thanks for the talk. Uh, I come from an environmental science background. Mm -hmm. So natural heritage is mm -hmm. more what I'm interested in. And considering what you've been talking about, where a lot of the members of the committee seek to um, further their political agendas and that removing something from the list doesn't have so much of a stigma anymore, what's your opinion on the current government trying to take the forests in Tasmania off the list? And how likely do you think that is for them to succeed? Hmm. I don't know a lot about uh, what's happening in, in Tasmania, but I would imagine, my guess is that from now on, it's going to be very hard to delist a site. If you mean put it on a site, in da uh, list in danger, um, that's still possible. But I think delisting um, is very unlikely. <laughs> 
uh, I saw Australia move very quickly and nimbly when it was the Barrier Reef was being discussed once. This is when you call in all your trade partners um, and you know it's Australia Pacific, Australia Asia. Um, so you don't really always have to speak. You, you've already set that up beforehand and you just allow uh, your, your partners or you know whoever you're dealing with on the committee do the talking. So I mean, just wrote a paper that dealt with Panama in a, in a very similar sort of case of where all the evidence was pointing to huge uh, site destruction, um, huge highways being built around sites. Um, and people would show the photos of this highway being built and uh, the Panamanian representative would say, this is not a road, this is not a highway. And we're looking at the picture and we can only say, this is a picture because diplomacy doesn't really allow you to say, actually, you're wrong, sir. So you can say, this is the picture we have. This is not a highway. This is the picture we have. This is really not a road, you know? So it's, it's challenging to watch that. So my guess is that Australia will be um, pretty active in talking to its uh, partners and colleagues on the committee. And if, if they want it to not uh, endangered or not uh, on the list, then that's what nation states do. They find ways to um, ameliorate those issues by, by having different sorts of agreements. So I back you on this decision, you might back me on mine. So it's a vote swapping goes on all the time. So we'll see. I'll do some research for you on, uh, on that and get back to you. But it's a great threat, still a great threat. Hello, I'm Raj Isser. I have oh. been uh, in academia for oh, about 12 years. I've read you, yes. Oh, well, oh, wow. <laughs> This really is a very <laughs> eminent audience, I have to say. Oh. And, and you don't in, get this in America. And, mm. and in, in UNESCO for 30 years mm. before that. And what I was always been struck by in academia is my, among my newly found academic, academic colleagues is they just didn't get it. Yeah. But you've got it beautifully. I'm so starting. I'm just my, a student. My I'm really is, just a student. Is, is, is really bravo. But what I wanted, to, the question that I wanted to put to you is when in 1988, before the World Heritage Center existed, I was responsible for the cultural side of the convention. And um, for both the cultural and natural sites, several of us, both inside the Secretariat and among the member states were very, very worried because there were already 344 sites. And we said, this can't be. How can you talk about outstanding universal value mm. and have 344 sites going on to 400, 500, and so on? Today, it's 981. 81. What do you think of that? 981 sites. I really don't mind. It's just a number. I, I mean, I know people at head office will say it can't be at a thousand. Can't be at a thousand. You know, like there's some. It's like drink driving or something. I don't know. It's some limit. It's bizarre. It. I just. You know, in a way, we could. If they were all being conserved well, and it was important for countries, why does it matter? It should be a good thing. We know that these. The inscription of sites also raises economic values, tourism, development, it's so important for some countries. You know, it's, I think it's differently uh, calibrated. The Italians, they don't really mind if a site doesn't make it on the list one year or the next, because they, as one of them said to me, people come to Italy anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, who's not going to go? Um, I'm sure it's the same for France. But some countries, you know, I think Fiji, the Vuku site was really very important. Um, and I think you would probably find that um, 
sites that have Indigenous values in this country, in Canada, actually really matter. So I think the idea of some arbitrary number and cutoff point is really not very, um, not very helpful. But if, but if in this rush to inscribe, as I call it, all the value, values drop out, I don't really mind about the outstanding universal thing, I, I don't really subscribe to that so much, but if the values for people, for the people who live around those sites and who really want those sites recognised and their cultures recognised alongside it, if that's, if, if that's what's most important, then the more the merrier, really. But I understand that UNESCO's, <laughs> the Secretariat has no funding. The US is largely responsible for that. And so how can they monitor the sites? We're, ta we're talking about a feel-good factor versus the actual administration. And there are no plans in, <laughs> that we are aware of in future that will try and ameliorate that financial burden. So how do you monitor? a thousand sites worldwide when everybody wants capacity because now we have all these other countries and they, they need capacity to rep so that the list becomes more representative as well, the other gentleman's question before. You know, so they need to, not so much church things and cathedrals and whatnot, but more indigenous sites or local sites, sites in the south. Um, so that's the, the tension. Great question and great to meet you, yeah. So I'll just abuse the chair, just a very last question. So the, the title of your lecture was The Right to World Heritage, question mark. And I can't help but listening to your talk and the, the really fine-grained analysis you do. I mean, do you think there is such a thing as a right to world heritage? I mean, is the language of rights and heritage a really bad marriage of concepts, do you think? Trust the philosopher to ask a difficult question. Uh, that's why I'm happy with archaeology, you know. Uh, well, I think maybe it goes to Raj's question too, that it's, every, it's everybody's right to certainly to have their own sites uh, represented. And it would be really nice if we could get um, beyond the sort of nation state interest. And in a sense, the whole point of the international cooperation was that we all buy into the protection of sites in other people's countries, so Abu Simbel and um, the Nubian sites. Uh, you know, it's not like we own them in any, the patrimonial sense I, I think is problematic because it's on Egyptian soil or Sudanese soil, however you want to put it, but it's actually that we all sort of help in that regard. It's like heritage humanitarianism. Um, but I would also like to think moving towards a language of rights and claims that we don't, we go beyond the nation state to the people who are less likely to be represented. So we have to do it on multiple scales. Um, and I think it, it's, it's odd that we have these different charters and conventions, but they can't speak to each other. So just as the intangible and the, and the 72 don't seem to have it, also the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People doesn't seem to connect. You know, and there's going to be another UN uh, charter shortly or convention that deals with cultural rights, where archaeology is mentioned in lip service. And we're never going to be able to, or we should be, but it doesn't seem likely that we're going to be able to fuse them in some way to, to make them really applicable. And of course, hardly any of them have any teeth anyway. There's no punishment. Maybe a delisting, you know, if you're really, really unlucky. But So I think we have to keep using the language, if nothing else, to try and think about who wins and who loses in the stakes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think um, when Annie and, and I and others were thinking of, of who would be the ideal person to invite to Sydney and, and launch the degree, but also to address these incredibly important issues, 
uh, Lynn was at the very top of our list, and uh, hopefully you've seen tonight why that's the case. She combines a, that fantastic set of archaeological skills of, of attention to practice and object and structure with a very sophisticated theoretical uh, worldview as well and draws on all kinds of different disciplines in the process. And it's always a remarkable thing to watch uh, in action. So uh, please join me in thanking Lynn for a wonderful lecture uh, tonight. <laughs>